The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Uh, We're on page eight of the uh, outline. And what we're doing here tonight is we're looking at biblical qualifications for elders. Let me speak uh, to me to this issue. Um, did you also get one of Eric? Eric Campbell did a great job. Uh, he had this and emailed it to me. I thought it was so good. A bit overwhelming, I must say, but he he filters out from First Timothy three and Titus one twenty five different descriptors or attributes of qualifications of elders, and we're going to go over that. That's very daunting, isn't it? You know, you really don't have to get past much past an elder must be blameless. You know, that's daunting enough. But uh, amen, amen. For most of us anyway, Tom, most of us, all right. But, um, you know, each one of these things uh, we're going to find as a matter of uh, matter for growth. Uh, would somebody be willing to read on page 8 of the handout or just from your own Bible, either way, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be he, he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Thank you, Mac. And somebody else, Titus 1, 6 through 9. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing the kind of thing. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, fully in discipline. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose. Okay, so these are the two clearest uh, pre- uh, prescriptions in Scripture about what an elder must be, what kind of person he should be. Now, I preached through Acts 20 and drew out some things based on Paul's description of his own life and ministry, but th- these are just clear uh, descriptions, requirements for the office of elder, overseer, etc. Uh, right away in 1 Timothy 3, it says, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. This has to do with the issue of uh, a godly ambition. A godly ambition. It is good to be ambitious for good things. 
We generally think of that word as something wrong, but uh, if you don't like that word, fine. It's good to desire good things. We should set our hearts on and desire good things. And I think what this does here is it uh, is a message not only to individual young men who are growing up in the church, but also a message to the church itself that the church must have a vision for leadership development, uh, must have a practical spiritual approach to taking a young, immature Christian man who someday wants to be an elder and fit him for the job. Uh, I remember uh, when we were talking about uh, the issue of women deacons, uh, and that was in the context of deacons having, uh, it seemed, spiritual leadership positions. Uh, one statement was made that if we didn't permit women to be deacons, there wouldn't be uh, enough men to lead. And uh, I said, I don't know that that's true. Okay, but if it is, then shame on this church. This church had been here since 1845. Plenty of time to develop godly men for leadership in the church. You see what I'm saying? And so it has to be intentional. Uh, a, a vision, an ambition has to be laid before young men saying, you should want to be this kind of a man. You should want to be this kind of a man. Even if God doesn't give you the gift of teaching and you're not able to be an elder, uh, these uh, virtues, these character traits are worthwhile. They are worthy to set in front of young men. And furthermore, as leaders in the church, we should have a strategy and, and an intentionality about helping uh, young men uh, prepare uh, to be elders. So as a matter of fact, uh, we've talked recently, um, uh, John Wooten and I talked about leadership development in a three-tiered uh, uh, sense. One is just basic discipleship, you know, just entrusting of the basic things of the faith to disciples, helping them to grow in them, you know, whether quiet times, uh, you know, devotions, evangelism, prayer life, various other things. Uh, the second tier of that is uh, people who set their hearts, young men who set their hearts on being elders, that, that there should be a le- uh, advanced level of training for them doctrinally and in other th- elements of what it means to be a good elder, a leader in the church. The third would be those, uh, third level would be those that are going to be vocational ministers because of our proximity to Southeastern Seminary. We have the advantage of perhaps uh, having some influence in those lives, you know, future preachers of the word, etc. cetera, uh, those that are going to be called eventually into vocational ministry. And so our church should have an answer for each of these three levels of spiritual development. And so John and I are praying through that and others looking at that. Uh, but here's a very important verse for that. It really kind of jumped off the page for me a couple of years ago when I said we really need a strategy for leadership development. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a good thing. And we as a church should embrace that, encourage it, and say, you know, let's help these young men as they prepare uh, to be elders. So, and then it goes on to a series of descriptors, descriptions. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. Um, what does that mean, to be above reproach? Well, a, a reproach uh, means that there's some, some flaw or defect in his character and his lifestyle that everyone can see. Um, and this individual um, uh, is known, has a, has a reputation concerning this, this reproachful behavior or character trait, etc. Uh, he has to be uh, abro- above reproach. Um, the husband of but one wife, we'll talk more about that uh, in, in due time, very important, but I think it's clear in 1 Timothy and in Titus that there's a focus on the man's family, on his relationship with his wife and on his children. And I think also with the uh, attribute of being hospitable, I think what it means is that the family um, is a testing ground or a proving ground of, of elders. Uh, the way he uh, shepherds his family, the way he deals with his wife, uh, you know, it needs to work at home before it gets exported to the church, I think is the idea. 
And so um, it's clearly giving us the, uh, the freedom and really encouraging us, look at the man's family. Look at what's happening at home. Um, but we'll get to that more uh, in a moment. Temperate. Um, this word, I think, uh, means self-controlled uh, or moderate. Uh, there's some overlap, obviously, in the phrase self-controlled, but the idea is uh, able to uh, restrain himself, um, to say no to himself. And uh, this, is, this is important both in the area of uh, sinful or wicked things and uh, perhaps even more carefully in the area of what we call lawful pleasures. Uh, somebody who's, uh, who's a self-controlled individual. He's not given to gluttony. He's not uh, overindulging in good things, not addicted to certain things, etc. Temperate and self-controlled. Um, also respectable, worthy of respect. He carries himself in a way that makes you respect him. Um, this is so important because, you know, he's uh, entrusted with speaking the very words of God. You know, there's a sense in which, um, you know, you really don't want to have to say in a sermon, but seriously, folks, I mean, it's, that's really bad preaching when you're at that point where you're needing to say, but seriously, folks, you know, this kind of thing, um, because it is serious what we're dealing with. There's a joy in it, uh, you know, central to what we're doing. But um, if, if the person's living a foolish, frivolous life, it's hard for him then to shift and say, but seriously, you know, you really need to walk well with God, this kind of thing. So the person is leading a serious life. They're serious about their walk with Christ. Uh, they're worthy of respect. Hosp- hospitable uh, means that their home is, is open for display. It's a base of ministry. It's a place where you can go and be ministered to. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible about this, uh, many things. In Matthew 10, when the two were sent out, two by two, the apostles sent out, and homes would welcome them in. Second uh, John deals with uh, the issue of hospitality of the Lord's workers and messengers. But this is dealing uh, uh, with the hospitali- hospitality of those church leaders themselves that they are willing to have um, strangers in their home, they're willing to have church members in their home, the home is a base of ministry. And that's, uh, that's important. And it's important, we're going to get to this uh, momentarily, in the issue of role modeling. You know, a young man wants to know how to treat his wife. Uh, the words, the commands from Ephesians 5 and, and Colossians and other, other pertinent verses are really going to be just words on a page until he sees the way an individual kind of incarnates that and, and the way he deals with his wife, etc., and so the home has to be a place of um, ministry, a place where um, he can uh, set a good example. So hospitality is going to be part of that. Um, and then we get to this issue of able to teach. Now, this is something that I mentioned on um, Sunday. And I think it's important that we recognize that not all elders are equally gifted in teaching. And not all elders have the same kind of the gift of teaching. Um, it is a different kind of thing to lead a small group discussion, Bible study, from uh, the ability to preach on a Sunday morning in that style or pattern of public proclamation of the word. Those are different aspects of the gift of teaching. And so we have different verbs like teaching and preaching. Paul did both. And all good preachers are also going to be uh, good teachers too. But not every teacher of the word of God is necessarily going to be able to preach well. I mean, they could could preach effectively and be able to communicate, but there are different levels of gift. However, the point I made on Sunday is... Uh, that it is, it is essential for, for elders to have the ability to articulate doctrine, to be able to take things off the page and put it in a clear way and to teach. They just need to be able to teach. And uh, if you look at verse 9 of Titus 1 there, on page 8 in the Titus quote, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
So there's a positive and a negative aspect of the elders' teaching ministry. Positively, he is uh, entrusting to the next generation those things that were entrusted to him. You know, uh, Paul says um, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also. also. So that's the idea of spiritual multiplication, uh, that these doctrines were passing them on. And so there's implied in that a discipleship process and a qualification of those folks so that they can study to show themselves approved unto God, workmen who don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's very uh, important, uh, able to teach. So the, in, in Titus 1.9, he is taking doctrine that has been taught to him. He's not a doctrinal innovator. We're not looking for whole new ways of understanding doctrine. It, you know, it, it unnerves me when I read about a new perspective on Paul. You know, that they're coming up with now. That Luther and the Reformers have been wrong for 500 years. You know, your, your antenna should go up. Whoop, wait a minute. <laughs> That's an awful lot of false teaching over those years of, of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. Oh, no, that's all wrong. That's not what Paul was. Look, your antenna should go up immediately about that. We are not trying to innovate doctrinally. We're not trying to shock people with whole new insights. That's just pride is all that is. We're trying to take this trustworthy message, what Jude calls the faith faith once for all entrusted to the saints and and pass it on intact to the next generation. Now, the teaching gift uh, implies an ability to unpack and repack those right doctrines so that the right doctrine gets from the text into the mind of a 21st century American or a 21st century Sudanese. You know, they're different cultures, but it's the same truth being imparted in both contexts. So that's the missionary gift or the teaching gift that you're able to go across the culture. But it, to some degree, that's not a lot different than just being a teacher in any sense. That you're trying to take what God has packed into words, almost like I think about a freight car. It's all been packed up. And you're opening the door and unpacking faithfully what's there. Remember how I, I preached in, in Romans. I was talking about all the sermons that had come from it. I mean, you think about it. It's really quite remarkable. You wonder in, in church history how many sermons have been preached from those 432 verses. But it makes perfect sense when you realize that Paul had sent the letter in his place. And the letter was a synopsis of what he would teach them if he had three years with them like he did with the the church at Ephesus. So it's very dense. There's a lot in every verse. There's a lot of implications. And you can really just just labor over them. They're very, very powerful. I was just meeting with someone for discipleship and we were talking about the expression Jews and Gentiles alike are all under, under under sin. Sorry, under sin. And what does that mean, mean to be under sin? And so I gave him an image of uh, this Russian wrestler, Alexander Karelin, that went 13 years in Greco-Roman wrestling without losing. The guy was a monster. I mean, he used to be able to pick up the other, his opponent and throw him down to the mat. Uh, so these guys would consider it successful to be able to walk away from their match. They weren't looking to win. They wanted to survive and, and just go on with their lives. Silver medal was fine. Let him have the gold. They just wanted to be able to survive. Well, I had a picture in my office of this guy on top of another wrestler, and he's got his, arm, his fingers around this guy's arm, and he's waiting for the last move, all right? But there's a picture, and he's got this snarling kind of, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, that's just... A, he said, why is that picture in your office? I mean, that's weird. I don't know. I just found it interesting. But it's an example of... Um, you know, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. We are just dominated by it. The guys, imagine not a world-class wrestler, but some, 
sixth grader, you know, under the same Russian man. You know, that's what we are towards sin. doesn't matter. Uh, long, long passages, uh, all of these things, they need to be unpacked. And a, teach, a teaching gift is the ability to see more in the text than just the simple words there. It's just coming up. If you don't have the gift of teaching, you can't be an elder. And that's very, very significant to me because it says in James 3.1, let not many of you presume to be teachers, uh, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more severely. And so there's, there, there are not, there's not going to be, you know, 60, 70% of the congregation is going to be able to teach. It's a, it's a special gift, a limited gift. And uh, those teachers need to realize they're going to, to bear a, a heavier weight of, um, of judgment on judgment day. And you might say, well, why would anyone want to do it? Well, you're stuck either way because you remember the parable of the one talent. And if you take that one talent and hide it in the ground, you get nailed for that one. So, you know, you really kind of have to just be in the middle between wanting to run and hide and then the presumptive side, the arrogant side of the teaching. You know, you're you're right in between. You say, I must teach. This is the gift that's given to me. And the Apostle Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach. Jeremiah said, I tried to hold in your word, but I couldn't. I'm weary of holding it in. It just bursts forth. It's a gift and, and that's something that's given. But not many get it. And if it's true that not many get it, then as I mentioned on Sunday, there should be absolutely no uh, jealousy or ambition concerning this. Uh, if God hasn't given you that gift of teaching, uh, you can't be an elder, but you're not at any disadvantage whatsoever on Judgment Day. None. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I think this is so important. We will be judged on Judgment Day by faith, uh, concerning faithfulness to what's entrusted to us. Think of the widow who put in the two copper coins. God's ways of judging are different than ours. She gave all that she could out of all that she had to live on. So he's comparing her to what she had to give and and how faithful she was. And Paul says the same thing concerning finances, not according to what you do not have, but according to what you have, you'll be assessed. And so you're not going to be assessed on an elder role if you're not given the gift of teaching. God didn't give that to you. Yeah, Matt. There was was a talent, the one talent. Mm -hmm. I'm studying that today. Just think that if that that guy had gotten one talent for him, he'd got the same combination that the other two did. Yeah, yeah. If he had been faithful with that one. Because the, the guy... Do it, not how much you do it. That's right. The one with the two talents gets well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. It's the exact same line as was given to the five-talent man. Exact same one. That's a valid point. So long story short is this is something God does. It's something the Holy Spirit makes you an overseer. If he has made you that, you must serve. You can't run and hide. Hide the talent in the ground. But many should not presume to take that role and uh, or neither should they be troubled by it. Neither should they be troubled. Steve. I'm just curious why you say that this has to be a spiritual gift rather than an ability. Um, there well, maybe that goes to what, how you understand spiritual gifts. How would you distinguish a, a, a spiritual gift and ability? How would you? Well, I understand spiritual gift as, as very specific things that are given to people, and I believe that those gifts are limited in terms of how many a gift, how many a person can actually have. I believe they can function in other roles, but they have one primary spiritual gift, and I think elders could have other spiritual gifts. And still be able to teach. Yeah, I think it's a valid point. I have a hard time defining a spiritual gift apart from a capacity or an ability. Um, like gift of encouragement is the capacity or ability to encourage. These are just words, but it's just something you can do. And then as the Christian, you know, this is a not of myself. It's something the Lord has enabled me to do. But uh, I appreciate your, your words. I don't, I don't know that we, we have to get uh, 
too technical on whether it's a spiritual gift or an ability, but they have to be, as the, some translations have it, apt or able or good at teaching. And the reason for that, I think, is um, that I just think the teaching gift primes the pump for everything that happens in the church. I think it all starts with that. It starts with a right understanding of the scripture. Jesus said, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Well, you can't do them if you don't know them. That's, it all starts with knowing the word. You can't, you can't do what you don't know. And so I just believe that it is uh, the, the wonderful gift of the teachers of the word in our church, in any church, to prime the pump for all of the growth that happens after that. That's a tremendous thing. And so for me, I know it says we'll be judged more strictly and more severely, but just remember, God gives more grace. And if you're called to be a teacher, don't be afraid. Um, it's a good thing. It's really a, a, a precious gift. And uh, yes, we'll be judged more severely because I think the, the logic there in James 3.1 is the more you know, you're judged based on that standard. And so you're just spending time all the time studying the Word. And so you know a lot more than you're living. <laughs> and that's a very humbling thing. You know, I've said before that I can see more in the text than I can preach. And I can preach, I preach more in the text than I really seem to be able to live perfectly. So that's very humbling, but able to teach. And this is, this is just very important. And there's a positive and a negative side, as I was starting to say a moment ago positively entrusting doctrine, positive doctrines like we're doing tonight, but then negatively refuting false doctrine. The savage wolves that come in not sparing the flock, those that come up even from the church's own number, those are hard. Think about what kind of a man can face somebody who's homegrown and off, off base, who's drifting a bit doctrinally. It just takes a special gift and a special way to be able to assess the seriousness of the problem and the proper approach. But Paul warned in Acts 20 that you've got both those dangers, but the but the focus of their damage is the doctrinal life of the church. And what I've noticed about false doctrine, I've said this before, that basically for the most part, as I have looked at, at uh, historical theology, I've looked at the history of the church, um, false doctrine is usually some true thing about God or the scripture stretched too far beyond uh, uh, the limits set by other scriptures. In other words, uh, the, the doctrines we read are in a network of truths, they're, they're proportional to the faith that's entrusted. And so um, we don't take a, a statement out of context and then push it so far you know, beyond. And that's what the heretics do. They take a single verse or a concept and push it too far. So I look on it almost like sometimes like pegs all connected with rubber bands. And you know, some people take them from their place and stretch them beyond what I'm comfortable with. But they haven't broken those, those bounds They've just stretched them where, beyond where I would. So I might not be able to, to have local church fellowship with folks like that. I might, we might disagree. But I don't consider their views heretical, you see. But when they go, it continue to go, and then some of those rubber bands are snapping. Now, what I mean is this teaching is contradicted by other passages of Scripture. You've gone too far. You've taken a right idea, a right concept, and you've pushed it too far. And I think that's the thing is that, that therefore, uh, Titus 1.9, he's got to be able to refute to say, you know, what you're saying is true and right, but there are other verses that keep it limited. You know, like there's some that teach on the absolute uh, sovereignty of God. But uh, we have to remember, it says in James 1, that, uh, that um, God does not compel anyone to do evil. For God, he doesn't tempt you to do evil. He's not enticing and pulling anyone to do evil. But each one 
when by their own evil desires they're dragged away and enticed. So we should never imagine a scenario in which God is actively exerting effort on somebody to make them do evil things. It's not in his nature. So that would be, you know, extreme version of the sovereignty of God. There are other things, extreme version, extreme uh, teachings on free will, which we call like open theism these days. They've, they've snapped boundaries, they've gone too far, that God can't know the future. Well, that's flat out contradicted in the scriptures. God seems to, he seems to play the future like a, like a violin or piano. You know, I mean, he knows the future as well as he knows the past. Frankly, he knows the past as well as he knows the future and the present. All things are equally vivid in front of him at all times, all aspects of human history. So that bothers me. Anyway, long, long story short is that a teacher has to be strong enough in the doctrine um, to uh, refute and teach positively, positive negative side. Okay? Now, let's understand, just as there are different uh, types of the gift of teaching, or the uh, ability of teaching, or apt to teach, or whatever. So uh, there is also the the uh, necessity, I would have to say, of developing a gift of teaching. It's not it's not just a set piece thing. Like you get this thing and that's it. So Paul tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of many hands. And so he's supposed to develop. You know, study to show yourself approved unto God. He's talking to an elder. Do you see that? Timothy's already an elder, and yet he's being told to study. Work hard at it. Keep learning. And so that's a challenge to me, to keep growing in my doctrine, to keep learning uh, more and more. And there's always more to learn. So I, that's, to me, that's important. So you can look at somebody, they have the gift of teaching, but it doesn't mean that they're done yet. They, there's more development to go. All right, let's keep going. Not given to drunkenness. I, I see that as related, certainly, in a, in a very detailed uh, case study of the issue of self-control. <laughs> not given to drunkenness. The, the devastation of a man who's leading a life like that, uh, he's, not, he's not drunk. Um, not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome. I guess this just has to do with his relational style. You know, there's a humility um, there. Uh, there are different personalities and I, I, I don't think you want to make everybody the same kind of person. God certainly hasn't made everybody the same person. But I know that there have been types of people that are church leaders and you just can't tell them anything. You know, you can't really talk to them. They are always right (laughs) and you're always wrong. And if you try to oppose them, you're going to get in an argument, a quarrel with them. Um, There's just an essential arrogance there. So I think the picture I have of of elders is that they're not quarrelsome, that they're they're actually easy to talk to. Um, They're easy to have a conversation with. They're not offensive people. Susan, yeah, go ahead. Back to uh, the idea of doctrinal problem yeah. and people teaching things um, without adequate counterbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'd ask, how do you see the individual member of the congregation involved in confronting someone when you see a lack of balance? When he or she sees a lack of balance, is there a role for that? Certainly, but just you know, confronting uh, the person who goes, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, iron sharpens iron, the scripture says. And so, you know, um, I'm not saying the sparks are going to fly. I mean, I've seen plenty of sparks in my time, but, you know, I, it doesn't have to be there. I think the, the point is you can't take your ball and go home. You know, if the Lord has laid something on your heart, you should go to an individual and, and speak. But just go with humility. You know, just go understanding that, that probably what ends up happening is that, that there's going to be kind of some mutual adjustment. See, the fact is, what you really note about all these character traits is they're really just Christian. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like non-elders can be quarrelsome or given to drunkenness. Of course not. This is the Christian life, friends. 
This is nothing unusual. D.A. Carson said the thing that's most remarkable about this list is how unremarkable it is. This is basic Christian character is what it is. It's just it needs to be actually happening. can't just be theory. So I would urge a church member who thinks that an elder has gone too far or is missing something, whatever, go in humility and, and speak. But just remember that there's a chance that... Um, that you might learn something too, that there's a two-way street. If the elder doesn't have the attitude of, I might learn something, then I think he's arrogant. That's the very thing I was speaking against a moment ago. But there's a two-way street. One last comment. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Um, I ask in humility because I don't do ministry in the church. And um, sometimes I've said to myself, not wanting to confront um, un- wrongly or whatever, right. um, well, that is the ministry that the Lord seems to be giving them. Uh-huh. And maybe they are going to emphasize this one point and not give us the whole balance and count on the rest of the church to do that. Is that a valid way for uh, an individual congregation, a person in the congregation to think? Well, maybe that's just really the point the Lord has driven home in their life and that's what they should be doing. Well, listen, I can tell you that all preachers are going to have their themes, their so-called hobby horses. And that's why I think the best protection against that is a verse-by-verse expository ministry because it's just going to lead, the scripture's going to lead you where it goes. And so that's the only way I think you can be any place 10, 20, 30 years uh, because I just am out of ideas, friends. I mean, you, you know, I've been here for almost 10 years. I don't have any new ideas. Um, but there's always more text. The text will definitely outlast my ministry here. So um, I guess, yeah, there's, there is imbalance in all teaching. There's false, there's false teaching everywhere i i you know but it's not what we call heresy or false teaching all of us are going to get a a theological adjustment when we see the lord face to face all of us and i'll tell you it's been very humbling for me to look back across church history and say there's not a single figure from church history the doctrines of which i 100 percent agree not one and that doesn't make them wrong (laughs) i mean let's let's be humble as that doesn't mean they're wrong they might be right but i disagree with john calvin on infant baptism i just do you know, and right on down the line, these are great men, but we have the temerity, like Bereans, to say, well, I think he's wrong about that. Yeah. I think this is why we have a plurality of elders yeah. in the scriptures, because you do have capable, qualified, teaching people who are able to yeah. debate things among themselves and, it's and true. keep some balance. That's a wonderful point, and it does keep them balanced. It's such a, it's a, a much superior structure, I think. Absolutely. All right, let's keep going. Not violent, but gentle. Uh, not quarrelsome. So um, we don't look, you know, it says in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. You know, it's funny how it says, flee the evil desires of youth. And we usually think of that in terms of lust and sexual immorality, and, all, and that's an issue. But the, what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 2 is the love of a good fight, you know, um, and I just, I find that to be the mark of spiritual immaturity when someone has the right doctrine, but the wrong demeanor about it, you know, they, they just seem to enjoy a good fight and, and that's not going to get anything. What's going to end up happening is defenses go up and people are, you know, the person's not skillful in bringing the defenses down and say, let's talk about it. Let's find what the scripture says. And then some actual progress can be made. So that's, you know, those are important points. All right. And not a lover of money. Um, you know, it's, it's part of that self-control or temperance issue is that, you know, he's going to use the things of this world, but he's not owned by them. And that's a hard balance all the time, isn't it? You know, we're, again, we're talking about the issue of lawful pleasures. Um, and to, to keep yourself balanced, and again, I'm going to piggyback on what Steve said, not just in the doctrinal area, but just in lifestyle issues. It's good to have brothers in Christ who can hold you accountable and help you you know, so that you don't go too far in a certain direction. So not a lover of money. Some churches have really helped their elders not be lovers of money. Um, 
help them a great deal um, in that way. There's a lot of history there, but uh, we'll just keep on going. This church is not one of them at all. Um, so this church has been very generous and uh, continues to be, but there are some churches that are very stingy, frankly, with their um, elders, and, and it's sad uh, to see that because it's not, it's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. By the way, if you listen to the tape, that didn't come out right, um, but uh, we'll just keep going. It's like you're all helping me to be a lover of money. That's not what I meant. I meant to, I meant to say it positively. So see how easy it is to, to do wrong? All right, we've already touched on this. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Verse 5, a commentary on this. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now, behind this, of course, is the implication that part of the role of an elder is to manage the church. Do you see that? So we're not shying away from the concept that elders are going to be making decisions on behalf of the church and that the church has empowered them to do that, that the church has empowered these men to make decisions, that we are not going to be purely democratically led, rather that the congregation will assess the general tenor of those decisions and is there if there's any malfeasance or anything sinful or wicked, certainly, but uh, they're entrusted with the budget. They're entrusted with the a more precious budget than money is the time budget of the people. We're not going to be, you know, a godly uh, group of elders not going to be laying 73 ministry opportunities before you and flogging you until all of them are equally filled. You know, that's just not wise. There's a precious time budget for the people of God. And so they're going to come to uh, wise decisions about that. So there is a management. All I'm saying here is that it starts in the home. There needs to be good management of the home. And the, the children um, are a barometer of it. And that's humbling, all right? It's a very humbling thing, all right? And uh, if you look in the scriptures at the number of times godly men had ungodly children, it's, it's a, actually a, a very consistent theme. I mean, you can go through, uh, you know, many of the godly men whose, whose children are discussed. You, you just look at the series of kings in Kings and Chronicles. You know, how many times there's, you have a godly Hezekiah, and then he's got a Manasseh for a son. You know, and that's, it's very, very tough. David had, had um, you know, Absalom as a son. And, you know, just how many things. And, and every father is going to acknowledge that it isn't just the sin nature of his, uh, his son but, or children, but that he himself is not a perfect father. There's nobody that's going to stand up, like with elder ministry, nobody's going to stand up and say, I, however, am a perfect father, you know. No, you're not. I mean, there are no perfect fathers. But uh, the issue here is uh, that this man has discipled, he's evangelized and discipled his children, and his children um, are submitting to the faith, etc. So there's a management there, and the home is the, is the testing ground of elders. Verse 6, yes, sir, yeah. Isn't it also an implication here that if you watch somebody in their home, if they... Uh, become an elder, that's exactly how they're going to respond to situations. Very likely. It's very likely. You know, I, they might, I, I, if you're a fly on the wall, they might um, behave worse at home, sadly, um, because you let your guard down a bit. Um, but what you're saying is the way that they deal um, with, the, um, with people under their care is going to be an approach they're going to take to the church, too. So that's, that's valid, a good point. So... Uh, important. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment of the devil. You know, I have come to look on elder ministry as an essentially humbling thing for me that's part of my own sanctification and my growth in Christ. It's nothing to boast about at all, um, because I see, I see a list like this, or Eric's compilation here. You know, this is just humbling. It ought to be humbling. Really, it is. And so, but I don't think that that 
comes early in the Christian life. That's at least the implication of this verse. Early in the Christian life, the, the strong leaders and the ones that know the word of God are doing well and they're, they're, they're leading people to Christ and there's just so many gifts there. There could be some pride there. And that's the implication here is that they need to have some failures. <laughs> you know, not that God ordains them, but God will orchestrate some things. It's like, and all you have to do is, you know, like the old saying, pride goes before the fall. Just, you know, say, you know, Lord, I thank you that I'm doing so well in all these areas. You know, this kind of thing. Just you got to pray like that. And then he will embark on a stretch that will prepare him better for future elder ministry. All right. And then he will be able to deal gently with people who are struggling with sin because he has to be honest, like in the book of Hebrews and say, I see the same sins in myself. I'm no different than you. I'm no better than you. I'm saved by grace. And uh, that is a true message. Only Jesus is the perfect high priest who didn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. There is no uh, man who wouldn't have to say that. So there's a humility there. And that humility comes just flat out from experience. It just comes from, from failure. It comes from sin and uh, being forgiven and being, you know, and just from living, not, not even his own sin, but just being around people and seeing the struggles of life. There's no arrogance in the ministry. Ought not to be any arrogance. All right. Uh, same judgment of the devil. I think that implies that the devil's core sin is arrogance or pride. That's, that's really what the devil's all about is he's an arrogant, prideful being. All right, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. Well, what are outsiders? They're non-Christians. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's obviously this is almost proverbial here. This is not a universal thing. It doesn't mean because somebody has a terrible reputation with non-Christians that he's not a great elder. Um, the fact of the matter is, you look at the Apostle Paul, he probably had a terrible reputation with certain Jews that pursued him from place to place and wanted to kill him. All right? So if the reputation is because he's preaching the gospel, that's one thing. But I think the general approach here is that uh, this kind of person is a good neighbor. They're a good friend, a good co-worker. They get along well. They submit to God-ordained authority well. And so that's what it means, I think. And that way he can carry on his ministry. There's nothing that would offend Etc. So they will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. First Timothy three one through seven. Um, Titus one gives us an elder must be blameless. What does that mean? Well, I think it's the same thing as above reproach. I don't think it means sinless. I don't think it means sinless. I just got done saying a moment ago in the book of Hebrews, no priest has ever lived except Jesus, who didn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. That's not what blameless means. What it means uh, is, you know, that there are just some people that are just disqualified. They just are. Because this or that or the other has happened in their life, etc. And they're not blameless. They have some kind of a sin habit. Um, that's what it means. I think what I, I basically get out of this is Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll know them. That's what this is all about. First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's both about inspect the fruit. What does it look like in their lives? Is the word of God alive in their lives? Do we see fruit in their lives? Do we see fruit in their family, in their marriage? Do we see fruit um, just in the way they carry themselves? That's what I think of as blameless. The husband of one wife, again, we'll get to. A man whose children believe, not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, we just covered. Verse 7, since an overseer, that's that interchangeable term, elder and overseer, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, said again. So entrusted with God's work is the issue of judgment. The issue of giving an account. Hebrews 13, 17 says, they are men who must give an account. So um, since by the grace of God, we have this ministry, Paul says, we do not lose heart. It's not a bad thing to get something entrusted to you by God, but it is a stewardship. And so an elder must have a mentality of stewardship. This thing has been entrusted to me. This is what, uh, this is the, the way I, I think about it. I'm going to give an account for this ministry, an account to God for how I carry myself, etc. So an elder has that mentality. Um, he, uh, it's entrusted. He must be blameless, not overbearing. 
You know what that means, rude. You know, love isn't rude. You know, steamrolling people in the hallways, flaunting your power, you know. Maybe you have a bigger voice back in the day, you know, before, you know, electronic amplification. Those guys, I'm sure, had big voices, had to. <laughs> uh, Spurgeon used to listen to people preach, and they, he knew right away whether the gift of preaching was there or not. If you couldn't fill the amphitheater with your voice, it really wasn't going to be there. Um, but uh, long story short is you can't use your overwhelming gifts or personality or whatever to, uh, to dominate somebody. That's what overbearing is. It's a matter of being rude, not quick-tempered. Um, I mean, really, everybody, every human being struggles with anger, all right? But James calls it moral filth, and, and we're commanded to get rid of it. And so if this person has an anger problem, it's going to be hard for them to carry on an, an elder ministry. If they're, uh, if they're quick-tempered, they cannot be an elder. Um, so, uh, given to drunkenness, we covered not violent. <laughs> I think uh, Eric said not a striker. Is that uh, not pugnacious or violent? No striker in the King James. So, you know, that, don't work on your right cross or your uppercut at that point. You know, I remember talking to somebody who said, you know, they were joking about verses in Ephesians and said, you know, I've really been struggling with the whole brawling thing, but I'm doing better recently. And I, <laughs> my my struggle on brawling, you know. I just still just like a good fight on Saturday night and just go down to the bar and I'm just, you know, I don't get drunk, but I just like a good fight. Well, can't be an elder until we get that worked out, okay? That's uh, it's not going to be there. All right, so not violent or pursuing dishonest gain. I'll tell you this, uh, the issue of anger and violence and overbearing and all that, you know, that's big because there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be disagreements. Satan's going to sow things. And if your response is anger and violence and all that, it's going to be so disruptive. You then are really just a tool in Satan's hand. All you've got to do is orchestrate a situation where somebody gets on your last nerve and, and you can really, you can really uh, do some damage. And it's hard to recover. It's very hard. So this is a person who's self-controlled in the area of anger. Hospitable, we talked on. Love what, loves what is good. He embraces it. Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Uh, leading a holy life. Be holy because I am holy. It's the issue of personal holiness and purity in his life. And disciplined. Uh, disciplined is uh, faithful in his quiet times. He's a, he's a man of prayer. Um, spiritual disciplines are in place. Uh, these things. This is uh, the kind of life. And we already talked about verse 9. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message. All right. These are the spiritual qualifications. Friends, this is the key to the difference between plurality of elders and a bunch of committees. Do you see that? This is the key right here. These two passages are the key because there are no such passages for committee members and chairs. <laughs> I can't find any. There aren't any. And so though you may have good people and though the nominating committee may do a good job, etc., they're not under any biblical compunction to find these kind of people. But when you have elders, they must be like this. And these are the ones that you're entrusting with the right to make key decisions in the life of the church. That's the key. You've got spiritually mature, godly men who are men of prayer, who meet these, these criteria, and uh, who then can lead the church well. And that's one of the compelling issues for me in terms of FBC moving its, its polity um, so that we can have biblically qualified people leading the church. That's, that's, that's the key. Now, uh, we were meeting and talking among the elders, and someone said, you know, it's good that we have an objective standard for elders. Friends, this couldn't be more subjective. Seriously, you choose one of these things. Take one of Eric's things and just say, tell me how this is not subjective. It's all a, a quality or a value judgment. You know what I'm saying? You're looking at it and it's like, is it there or not? Able to teach. Let's take that one. It's not enough just to be able to articulate doctrine. There's other issues here. Blameless. It's a, it's a value judgment. These are all value judgments. But taken together, all 25, <laughs> taken together, it gives you a portrait of a man. Do you see what I'm saying? A portrait of what kind of person he has. Any questions about this?
Susan. So apparently then what's meant is somebody who's been a Christian for a while, even if they're 23 years old. Yeah, it's not about chronological age. And uh, again, talk, that's a very good example of something being qualitative, not quantitative. He doesn't tell us how recent, you know, not a convert less than 36 months. He doesn't tell us that. He just says not a recent convert. So I guess the idea is if, if he's still kind of, I hate to put it this way, but spiritually wet behind the ears, some evidences of uh, some areas, you know, he's not ready. So, yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's not a chronological thing anyway. The, the word is, is translated neophyte, which mm-hmm. means you've got to have roots, and that takes some time anyway. It just does. The, the Bible's a big book. You know, you're converted last week. You're just beginning to find your way around, you know, where, where Matthew or Romans is. You know, it just takes time. And God means for it to take time. He means for us to come to him daily and be fed. And that just flat out takes time. It takes a while for what I call the city of truth to be erected brick by brick inside the heart of an individual. But I'll tell you this. If someone is voracious and they're reading and memorizing it, they can make rapid progress. And so that may be Timothy's case, especially under a mentor like Paul. Yeah, go ahead, um, I think you mentioned that it's the job of the church to recognize elders. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're going to get to that. But can you just talk about um, the difference between a church recognizing that and a man seeing it in himself? That people are aspiring to this, but they just don't think they're ready yet or that they haven't, right. you know, gotten there yet. Well, um, I think as, as an individual reads these things, and, and by the way, even though women are disqualified from being elders in the immediately preceding passage, 1 Timothy 2 at the end there, this is still something for a woman to read because I've said before, first of all, these are Christian traits. So basically this is a, it's very, every bit as much uh, like when it's talking about a godly woman whose beauty doesn't come from outward adornment or braided hair or gold jewelry, but from a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Well, that's true of men too. Shouldn't a man have a gentle and quiet spirit because it's of great worth in God's sight? So it's not really reading each other's mail when you read this. If you're a woman reading 1 Timothy 3, you know you're not going to be an elder, but you can say, I want to be hospitable. I want to, I want to be, you know, I don't want to be given to drunkenness, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, these are val- valuable things. So any Christian can read this and say, Lord, how am I doing? I'm, I want to grow. And then they could be in a network of accountability relationships. And when you say, please tell the truth, what do you see in me? You know, those, those are discipleship relationships that are so precious. And you say, you know, and not because I want to be an elder, but just I want to be a Christian. I want to be a mature Christian. That's a good question. Somebody else? I can't ever think of Noah. Uh, Noah would certainly could fill a role of elder. Absolutely. Uh, there's always some that are qualified. Yeah. We all should be according to these. Mm-hmm. But we know that because we're human, because mm-hmm. we, we, we're sinful, mm-hmm. It's not possible, but there are some. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, and, yeah, go ahead, please. I'm not sure about an individual himself recognizing or desiring. Desiring one thing, yeah. recognizing yeah. qualification of something else. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and that's why this happens in the context of a beautiful church fellowship. So that's where, uh, you know, the, the spiritual gifts of encouragement or whatever come along. You know, this individual, they sit down to teach and the encouragers come and say, when you taught that, I was blessed. I was blessed. I was strengthened by that. Thank you. Please keep doing that. So uh, if none of that ever happens, well, you probably should look in a different direction. All right. I mean, you teach and teach and teach and never get any of that. And actually, you might get someone pulling you aside and saying, you know, 
I think you might invest your time in different ministries at this point, you know. Um, so my feeling is that's, that testimony is, is valuable and beneficial in the life of the church, you know. And not because you're going to be an elder, but you just want to grow. More questions. And it doesn't have to be about this passage, but about elders. You all got the church's uh, the, uh, draft. It's just a piece of paper right now, but it's a valuable, important piece of paper on Sunday. So uh, be reading it. Um, you have lots of time, you know, relatively speaking. We'd be le- uh, looking at it on uh, August 13th, so we wanted to give it to you in plenty of time. It's not an authoritative document at all right now, just a draft. Yeah? If you were qualifications, if someone was disqualified, how is that determined or brought about? And there's the option of someone disqualifying themselves, or would it be you know, elders disqualifying or general congregation disqualifying someone? Well, I think there's a multi-tiered process to that. Um, I think that that no one should be presented to the church as a candidate for elder who hasn't first been through an assessment process by the existing elders. So I think that's a, such a very important spiritual um, ministry that the uh, discernment of these things uh, can be done by the um, by the existing elders. But they're not done. They can't make somebody an elder. They then present the individual to the church, and the church must see it too. Uh, and so there's a balance there between the existing leadership uh, being able, frankly, to filter candidates um, and present to the candidates those that they can approve and say, we believe that God has, the Holy Spirit has prepared these individuals to be elders. But the final ratification of that is done by the church. So. Yeah, Steve. The pragmatic approach in churches is often, you know, a name is presented, or is there any reason why this person couldn't be an elder? Right. But the whole tenor of these things goes the opposite way. So the person is not qualified until they disqualify themselves, but they must actively demonstrate the qualification. I agree with you, Steve. I think there's a beautiful balance here. You look at 1 Corinthians 13, for example. Okay, after the first three verses that talk about the importance of love, and if you didn't have love, that'd be of no use, then it starts to describe it. And it's remarkably balanced between positive and negative descriptions. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, And then it goes back to the positive. There's just a a beautiful balance, and that's just on the virtue of love. Uh, The Ten Commandments are overwhelmingly negative. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Those are a bunch of prohibitions. So there are some prohibitions here. Um, not given to drunkenness, you know, et cetera. But then there are positive um, things as well, like blameless. Um, so both of those are there. The guy has, uh, doesn't have anything that's an eject mode for him, you know, but positively he's filled, he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, you just you feel like you're, you're in the presence of a Christian man when you're talking to him. That's it. So I, I like what you're saying. It's not just negative, but both of them are there. Anybody else? Yeah, Herb. Yeah covered this yet, but will there be, is this something that uh, you would serve at uh, over a period of amount of time, like three years, or would it be an ongoing thing? Different, yeah, different churches do it different ways. One of the approaches is to basically say, if you meet these criteria at some point in your life, unless you sin and do something that you'd be disciplined, you really would be an elder for life. Well, that's true in terms of your character traits, but let's not forget that there's a certain role that's being played and that that role in a very practical sense is taxing, especially for those that are what we call lay or non-vocational elders. You know, you're talking about men that put in a full day's work and then come to a three, four-hour meeting on a Tuesday night, and if they're conscientious, they're never going to want to 
give it up. They want to keep serving, but they're getting worn down, etc. So I think there's a certain amount of wisdom in uh, having a cycle there, not because of sin, but just to give these uh, de- dedicated servants a sabbatical, basically, a seven-year break. So the three years, and then the church reaffirms after three years, and then three years again, and then you're definitely off, and then you'd get voted back in again if so. You know. But th- that's not... You know, that's not coming down from Sinai or anything. That's just, I think, a wise pattern. Other churches that say elder for life, I, I respect it. I just think practically speaking, it's asking a lot of these guys. Some churches have kind of, I don't know, elder emeritus or I don't know what they call them. You know, they're off for a year, but they're still elders. I know why they're doing that because they're saying that they're still this kind of person. They didn't lose these traits. So. What's the process for removing an elder? So if someone, say if someone's bound to not have attributes of being an elder. Right. Well, um, 1 Timothy 5.17 says that you should not bring an accusation. No, entertain, no accusation against an elder should be entertained unless it's brought by the testimony of two witnesses. So basically, uh, that's an extra verse that is put in there to, uh, I think, because the elders are going to carry on a public ministry and all Satan has to do is uh, have a scurrilous accusation. And so we need to be sure that there's a certain level of protection. But I think the basic approach is, uh, you know, and it goes on to say that if you sin, he must be rebuked publicly. The reason for that is that he has such a public role in the life of the church, a public ministry. That may be at least in part what James means when he says that elders will be judged more severely or strictly because you're going to have to be up in front of the church and get rebuked. What the nature of those sins are, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think the elders who manage, generally manage church discipline, that's, that's entrusted to the elders to do. Is it's the elders that are going to investigate cases of church discipline. It's the elders that are going to be bringing it ultimately to the church. Um, I think uh, they would be managing discipline cases within the elders as well. But Matthew 18, um, I think, tells us what to do ultimately. You're going to the church ultimately. Yes? Well, we talked about how a person gets removed. How does a person get actually put into that? If we take Acts chapter 6 as being deacon. Um, you know, there the instruction is, look ye out among you, you know, find these seven men of honor before filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But for an elder, you have words like appoint, ordain, things like that. Well, you did. It's different than yeah. what we do with vocational verses. Yeah. Well, you point out a good thing, and this is where congregationalists and Presbyterians find their disagreements, and so we're not going to solve it. We are congregationalists, and we're going to continue as such. And so um, basically... Uh, at that point, I, I think I don't struggle with the appoint thing. I just think things are different when you have an apostle. Um, I don't know that there weren't elders involved in Acts 6. Uh, there's just a lot of things that are not said. I mean, you can't imagine that 3,000 people in the church just kind of amorphously found, you know, Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and, Tim and, and those guys. There probably were leaders that said, look, here's some, you know, I don't know what the process was. There's just nothing said. Um, but I think that's important in that the congregation's role. Um, it's very beautiful, actually. The problem comes from the congregation to the apostles. The apostles suggest the solution and put it back to the congregation. The congregation choose the seven and bring them back to the apostles who lay their hands on them and then entrust them to the congregation to do the ministry. It's beautiful balance there. But uh, I don't think we're going to solve that aspect of polity perfectly to everyone's satisfaction. Lots of godly people have disagreed on the Presbyterian model or the congregation model, which we will discuss more in due time. Anyone who hasn't asked a question yet, because there's uh, one or two that would like to try again. And I don't mind that, um, since the vast majority of you are happily quiet. <laughs> Such an august group. 
Yes, sir. Uh, so, you know, looking at First uh, Timothy three one, it, it looks like the the, poten the potential elder uh, submits his own name. Is that how? Uh, I, I didn't. I don't remember reading that in the thing. But is that how we would start off in the process? Or would we well, I don't get that the potential elder submits his name from First Timothy. I think it just says that if he wants to be one, that's a good thing. It's just a matter of heart desire. I don't think you'd want to ever have an elder who didn't want to be an elder. <laughs> I mean, that would be a bad thing. So that's all just talking about heart desire. I don't think it gets to that level of practicality. I think basically, here's, here's the deal. Uh, and speaking about what I talked to, uh, with Susan about a moment, a moment ago, the elders should be humble enough to, to be able to receive names of potential elder candidates from the congregation. But the elders should know the church. There's not going to be any stealth candidates. You know what I'm saying? It's like, whoa, where'd this guy? Out of nowhere, there, he's an elder. Who is he? That, isn't, that can't happen. Don't you see? These are folks that have already led well and have been teaching, and it's not going to be any shocks. Probably if there's going to be any difficulties, it's like, why wasn't so-and-so also an elder kind of thing, rather than why are these men elders? I think it's going to be just kind of obvious to the church, the ones that are presented. It just might be that the Lord has blessed us, and, and I don't think that should even trouble us. Because I actually think that this elder ministry is going to be exhausting and difficult. And I don't think it's a shameful thing to go through a three-year cycle and then say, look, I need to be with my family for a while, you know, and to not go up for another three years. So we're going to need actually a good number of men that could step up and serve. So I'm not, I'm not troubled by that. But I think the elders should seek names from the congregation. And frankly, also talk about somebody growing on the radar screen. All right? You know, so-and-so, man, I want to tell you, last night, I, he did a great job. You know, at Home Fellowship, he just did an excellent job opening the Word of God. I think he's got a real gift. You need to watch that and watch him. Seven, eight, nine years later, he's an elder. And we wouldn't have known, the elders wouldn't have known that except somebody came and gave us a report. Said, I, you know, when he teaches the Word of God, I'm blessed. I'm strengthened. And so, um, to me, then the elders are receiving names. But the elders, also members of the congregation, they have the ability to suggest names among themselves and uh, pray over them. They should follow the pattern of Jesus who spent all night in prayer I'm not saying that they have to spend all night in prayer before he chose the apostles. That's what he did. But the idea is, Lord, show us which one you've chosen so that there's a seeking of God's face. And then, um, having prayed through it, I think they need to in, 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 no, interrogate, um, question. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, there needs to be a process that they go through in which uh, the elders are, are made to give an account for their doctrine in their life. And I think it's the elders that should do that. So... All right, these are good questions. Uh, Susan, one last one. I saw that here in the back. And then we'll all go. One other possibility. There were, there were two verses in First Timothy where Paul refers to prophetic utterance that was given over Timothy. And um, in one case, by the Presbytery. So perhaps the church could look forward to this. Uh, the elders, um, that there would be identification of leaders not just by using our rational minds, although I'm certainly not as doing that, well, I would put something else between use of our rational minds and the gift of prophecy. And that is the wisdom that comes from following the leadership of the indwelling spirit by studying of the scriptures and looking at these descriptions and saying, Lord, does this man meet these? It's not rational mind at that point. I'd go beyond it. It's uh, the leading of the spirit, which I would say is short of the gift of prophecy as it's described in the New Testament. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time we've had tonight. Thank you for each of the brothers and sisters here and their eagerness um, uh, about this uh, topic. 
And I pray that you continue to teach us and train us and prepare us, O Lord. And um, just love us. Lead us to the truth, Lord. We know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.